Hello and welcome to CB on Air podcast. I am Victor Mendez Barreira, Central Banking's ECB correspondent based in Frankfurt. In today's episode of our Partners and Focus series, we will explore the ECB's role as a provider of price and financial stability in the Eurozone. Partly due to the lack of a central fiscal mechanism, over the last decade, the ECB has repeatedly stepped into sovereign debt markets to tackle fragmentation risks. However, ever higher sovereign bond holdings and higher inflation come to show the limits of this strategy as a long-term solution for the region. To discuss these topics, we have with us today Oliver Wunsch. He worked at, at the IMF during the crisis years as part of the Troika, and now is partner with Oliver Wyman. Thanks for joining us, Oliver. Thank you for having me, Victor. So, and earlier this week, uh, Eurostat reported the inflation figures for the Eurozone, and year on year, and they reached a new record high of 4.9%. And the data also show, uh, showed a meaningful uh, north-south divide, while inflation in Germany reached 6% and in the Netherlands 5.6%. In France, it stood just at 3.4% and in Italy at 4%. Taking into account this complex environment, how can the ECB strike the right balance to preserve price stability going into 2022? Yeah, yeah so inflation dynamics are indeed very interesting. And uh, you, you mentioned the uh, divide um, from 4.9 on average to 6% in Germany. And all of, all of this is well above the ECB's own 2% target. So the question is now what's happening going forward. A lot of the drivers seem to be of temporary nature, um, such as the recent hike in energy prices, the supply chain issues, the labor market shortages that we are all aware of. And the question is, um, we also see dynamics on the wages, um, which in the European labor market, as you know, are pretty sticky once they once they have moved. So the question is not if inflation dynamics accelerate, but it is a question when this will happen and what then the resulting level will be. However, if it were necessary for the ECB to intervene, it is fair to say that the leeway that they have is actually quite limited because the weaker Eurozone countries depend on the ECB support. Spreads in the periphery have already substantially widened and this shows that markets are watching and the fiscal space the periphery has is actually very limited. Yeah. And in this context, also the um, the ECB is scheduled to to announce the the uh, the conclusion of the PEP program, the asset purchase program. It present it approved in 2020 um, to deal with the pandemic. But uh, most observers still expect the governing council to boost the APP program to smooth the transition in the markets. Mm -hmm. To what extent can the ECB durably transfer the flexibility embedded in the PEP to the APP without the stoking fears of monetary financing. Yeah, so for that one, let's focus on the sovereign exposures. Um, if we compare the PSPP, which is a sovereign part of the APP and the PEP, in addition to bringing more volume, the PEP included uh, public sector securities at the short end of a maturity ladder. In particular, it also included a waiver for Greece, which right now is sub-investment grade and would therefore be excluded from the APP. But both programs are bound um, by the capital key of the ECB in terms of the allocation of the overall volume of purchases across Eurozone members. And the capital key in turn is determined by the GDP and population size of the member. So now under the PEP, the ECB has given itself 
much more flexibility in applying the capital key benchmark so that they have been able to overweight those countries that face more challenges. And we all know which countries these are. With the expiry of the PEP, in this in theory becomes more difficult again. And at a time where the weaker countries now have much higher debt levels than before the pandemic. So now the issue will be whether the ECB finds a way to target their purchases in a way that does not overstimulate the stronger economies, which um, again would drive inflation dynamics. So while even under the PSPP, the capital key was not applied mechanically, it played a big role in the ECB's defenses of their monetary strategy in front of the European Court of Justice. The arguments always were, first of all, there won't be any defaults. And I think that argument still holds true, given the credible safety nets that have been um, uh, created since uh, the sovereign crisis, like, uh, for instance, the European stability mechanism. But also they said that the capital key ensures that uh, the ECB is conducting a unified monetary policy and it does not provide any um, advantages to specific Eurozone members. So um, this diverging from this line with having a more targeted approach will be quite a challenge for the ECB. Now there is one program um, the ECB has that can actually target. It's the OMT, the Outright Monetary Transactions. You remember this has been established uh, right after um, Mario Diaghi's speech on um, whatever it takes, but it was actually never activated and it has comes with very tight conditions. So there needs to be a macroeconomic adjustment program and we know what this means, but it has been very effective. So there is ECB's own research that showed that um, the crisis countries um, um, had a funding benefit of up to 200 basis points and there were no um, um, uh, negative spillovers or spillovers to the to the uh, um, non-crisis countries. So that could be an option, but as I said, it's politically very, very challenging to go through it. And taking into account all these trade-offs that you've mentioned, could a fiscal common authority offer the ECB a way out from these complex trade-offs uh, involved in asset purchase programs? Yeah. yeah, this question requires us to go to the root of the problem. And um, the root of the problem is that the weaker Eurozone countries don't just have a debt problem or just lack uh, fiscal discipline. In fact, actually, uh, most of these countries that we are talking about managed to achieve a primary surplus in the years before the pandemic hit. So what we are really looking at is a severe lack of competitiveness or a severe divergence of competitiveness in, uh, within the Eurozone. And that's a structural problem. And even if you address this diligently and with force, it takes years to solve. And there are some important lessons that you can take from IMF programs. And this is money is not necessarily the biggest problem. Much more important are realistic targets and also political ownership and the buy-in of the citizens that uh, quickly want to see some tangible progress. And from a macroeconomic and political point of view, couldn't uh, this fiscal capacity uh, be more legitimate and sustainable than constant ECB interventions to prevent uh, the repeated episodes of uh, market fragmentation? Yeah. So as you said before, structural reforms are needed and the role that the ECB assumed since the debt crisis is mostly due to the fact that the political level of the EU and its member states have so far not been able to agree on a common fiscal framework. So nor have many member states being willing to address structural issues or at least develop a credible plan that would enjoy the long-term support of the electorate. 
So the ECB has neither the explicit mandate nor the means to push for even for structural reforms. And all they have done is to implement stopgap measures that uh, hold the Eurozone together. And with that, they have even uh, reduced pressure on politicians that then uh, engage to a certain extent um, to a strategy of complacency. So I think the uh, recent statements, both by Mario Draghi, but also Christine Lagarde, that's now the political level that needs to act, um, they, that's very important. And in your view, are national authorities and in the general public ready to adopt a system of fiscal transfers? Yeah, so I think there is a vast majority for measures that are able to mitigate short-term imbalances. So the reason is very simple. Um, I mean, major economic turmoil in the Eurozone is the cost is huge and politicians as well as their voters, they prefer stability. That For that reason, it makes a lot of sense. Regarding the question, however, for something more long term like the fiscal union, it's important to say that it requires a strong fiscal governance and this comes with cost for everybody. The fiscal union requires that there is a political decision making body, like for instance, the parliament that is responsible for deciding entirely and in, with the, uh, completely on the budget, which means tax revenues and expenditures, and as a residual, um, and also on the debt. And you need to have this decision-making power, the responsibility concentrated in one single body. So when next-gen EU was agreed last year, discussions were not necessarily only about who should pay or who should take on the risks but also would decide on the spending. And it was the countries that would benefit most from next-gen EU loans and grants that were very, very skeptical of the euro level or even another member state having a say on how the money is spent. So I'm not sure, so sure if member states, uh, net payers and net recipients would be willing to hand over their fiscal autonomy to, uh, to the EU level. And even more so if the EU current governance framework with the specific roles that, for instance, the Council has, the Commission has, the Parliament has, and that are quite different from what you would see in a normal sovereign state, would credibly be able to take on such responsibility. Hmm. And maybe could European officials find a midway solution not requiring a fiscal transfer, for example, maybe a, a reform of the Stability and Growth Pact and the establishment of a strict mechanism overseeing reforms mm -hmm. in weaker countries. Could that, could that suffice in your view? I think we have tried most of that. So the SGP with these strict quantitative thresholds of 60% uh, debt level, 3% deficit was meant to obviate the need for fiscal framework and simply because it was clear that the political agreement on the latter was too ambitious. So um, while there are discussions on reforming the SGP, for instance, by changing the thresholds to make them more, say, realistic to the current uh, to the current situation, um, I'm not sure whether this will be the long-term solution. And probably a question would be: What um, would, would be to ponder to what extent Europe has the political leadership uh, required to tackle these fiscal monetary difficulties? Do you think that the, the new green a red and yellow a coalition led by new, the new Chancellor Olaf Scholz in Germany, Mario Draghi in Italy and Emmanuel Macron in France are the right partners maybe to reach a durable and enforceable agreement. So the way that you're asking this question might be an indication for the underlying problem. So you're mentioning the strong member states, Germany, Italy, France, and you're mentioning the government leaders but you don't mention any EU-level personnel and uh, 
you don't mention the EU's elected body, the European Parliament, and you don't mention any of the other 24 member states. So as a matter of fact, this is the way the decision-making worked um, in emergency situations like the sovereign debt crisis, the euro crisis, um, or the, um, um, the COVID crisis. But if the EU really wants to go for long-term fiscal integration, um, perhaps these decision-making structures are not sufficient because they lack the democratic legitimacy that you would need in a, in a, in a federal setup. But the appetite to go that route is, I think, quite limited. So, of course, you have in the German coalition agreement, you have the, the long-term target of a federal Europe. But um, as a matter of fact, in the election campaign, this topic didn't play a role at all. So one might wonder how uh, prepared, for instance, the German citizens are to go that direction. And what's true for Germany is also true for other member states. Um, look, for instance, right now at the tones that you hear in the uh, presidential campaign in, in France. So I'm skeptical that we are seeing kind of a grand bargain here. And I think the EU will continue to be more crisis driven when it comes to policy change with all the problems attached to it. And in that context, I, I see three scenarios and they are driven by the upcoming inflation dynamics. So if um, inflation dynamics slow down again, I think the EU will do what has been done before. They will muddle through. If um, it's not the case and inflation dynamics continue, I think the ECB will try to um, adjust the purchasing programs in the way that I mentioned um, to better target those countries that need um, the support in the area of fiscal space and um, borrowing cost, which already will be a top departure from the line of argument that the ECB made before um, when they came up with the, with the PSPP. Um, and the programs that they implemented uh, during the euro crisis. And if that still doesn't help and the ECB needs to act on inflation um, in a way that um, would put certain eurozone members at risk, I think we will end up with another round of emergency meeting in Brussels where a mechanism is developed that leads to fiscal transfers without actually calling him that way. And in the short term, this might be the right thing to do because simply the adjustment cost would be enormous otherwise. But I would leave it as an exercise to our listeners whether this is the way that um, the EU should really develop in the long run. Yeah, with with that note on, on the political and uh, also the uh, lack of popularity that they probably the uh, construction of a federal completion of a federal structure in Europe we are going to uh, finish the, the conversation. Thank you very much, Oliver, for your time and your insightful views. And um, I hope you have a, a very nice day. Thank you.